Please rise for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading from Acts 13. I'm just going to read a few verses, uh, starting in verse 38, but we will be looking at the whole chapter. So beginning in verse 38 and reading through 41, hear now God's Word. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. I want to, as I preach through any series, I like to occasionally remind you that um, I didn't invent this. I have a book, a library full of books that I rely on. And in particular, I want to acknowledge John Stott and his commentary on the book of Acts, Derek Thomas, and uh, for this sermon, uh, Dr. Jay Adams, who was helpful as well. Um, Preparation for today's sermon was challenging for me uh, in that I have decided to cover 53 verses compared with the 24 verses I covered last week. Now, if you want, I can slow down. We can do one verse a week, but it would take a while to get through the book of Acts. I think it's important and helpful, though, to keep this section of the narrative together. It is a description, uh, we began the description here of the first of three missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. The good news is that most of my sermon will actually be the Apostle Paul's sermon, and so if you don't like the sermon, you can take that up with him when you get to heaven. Okay. Um, It's important to remember, of course, that the book of Acts is recording the continuing ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus was killed, crucified, dead, buried, and rose again from the dead. And now he, and remember in the opening chapter of Acts, he's appeared to his disciples and he's commissioned them to continue his work. The church is the body of Christ doing his work on the earth. That's what we're still doing. And so he, he gives them their marching orders. He tells them that uh, they are, in fact, as it were, to march nation to nation and empire to em- empire to the ends of the earth with his kingdom message. It's a world mission, and it's a mission that began long ago, and it continues today. It's a story of the power of God at work in history Converting and saving individual men and women and changing families and entire cultures and nations. This fire started at Pentecost. What an appropriate image we have on the day of Pentecost with fire descending. This flame continues to spread today. Now you recall they were first called Christians at Antioch. The focus Prior to that had been on Jerusalem, and it was here that Herod Agrippa I had James put to death. He had imprisoned Peter and intended to do the same with him. This was from last week's sermon in chapter 12. 
We also saw in that that the Exodus story was retold. An angel of the Lord delivered Peter from his slavery and imprisonment. And likely that same angel of the Lord passed over the Pharaoh king, in this case Herod Agrippa, and struck him down uh, with worms and death. The last verse of chapter 12 uh, provides a transition to the next event. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. We'll refer to him as John Mark. Now, due to a famine that had particularly affected the church in Jerusalem, and because of the motivating grace of God, the churches had gathered some support, that is, their funds, their money, and supplies, and they sent them to Jerusalem by the hands of Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. These three men had been sent by the elders of the church in Antioch, the church in Antioch, which is interesting because Jerusalem plants the church in Antioch, and now Antioch has grown up, and now they're helping the church in Jerusalem. Uh, And again, to bring supplies and relief due to this famine. That's really not unlike the recent relief that our church and others uh, have provided to Ukraine uh, by way of Pastor Bujamil uh, Yarmulak, who is the presiding minister of the Eastern European Presbytery, who's in Poland. And he's literally gotten in his vehicles and driven supplies into Ukraine to provide for our six churches there and to help meet their needs, and we have assisted in that. Other churches have done the same. So that's that kind of a situation where we're looking after each other, taking care of each other. God is supplying needs in different ways and bringing his church together. And so now these men have returned to the church in Antioch, and no doubt they've given a report to the leadership, at least in Jerusalem. John Stott wrote this. He said, in the first missionary journey... Although Luke sketches the whole itinerary, he focuses on three main incidents. He portrays Paul evangelizing the proconsul, that would be the governor of the region, and confronting the sorcerer in Paphos, the provincial capital of Cyprus, preaching the gospel in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch uh, in South Galatia, uh, Galatia, and addressing a pagan crowd in the open air in Lystra. They illustrate the extraordinary versatility of the apostle in adapting himself to different situations. He appeared to be at ease with individuals and crowds, with Jews and Gentiles, the religious and the irreligious, the educated and the uneducated, the friendly and the hostile. He's a gifted man. Our text is filled with instruction helping us to understand the church then and now. And what is great is it is pregnant with hope. So let's take up in verse 1. Now, in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius, and Cyrene, uh, uh, Manian, who had, had been brought up with Herod, the tetrarch, the tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, 
they sent them away. So we met Barnabas before in chapter 4. His real name was Joseph, but he had been given the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And you can imagine what Barnabas must have been like. And we're going to see him show up multiple times, and he's certainly here as he's traveling with Paul. This is the guy that everybody, he's friendly, he's an encourager. He always go away from having had a conversation with him, ready to go do something. And uh, so he's very mindful about the needs of other people. He was the one who brought the newly converted Saul, remember, after the road to Damascus, brings him to meet the apostles. They trusted Barnabas. So he brings Saul and introduces him to the other apostles. He was also sent by the Jerusalem church to investigate the, the initial work at Antioch that we read about in Acts chapter 11, where it says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man filled with the Holy Spirit and of faith. And it was Barnabas who also, recall, went and retrieved Saul of Tarsus and brought him back to Jerusalem and Antioch so that he could minister to them. Simeon, uh, that's the Hebrew word, was also called Niger, which is just the word for black. He was perhaps Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus. We read about that in Luke 23 and who must have become a believer since his sons Alexander and Rufus were known to the Christian community, which we read about in Mark 15 and in Romans 16. Lucius of Cyrene was a Libyan from North Africa. Uh, Manian, the friend of foster brother, or, or the foster brother of Herod Antipas. Now this was the son of Herod the Great. Remember we talked about three Herods last week. Um, so this is not the Herod that died in the previous chapter, but this is probably why Luke knew so much about Herod. So here's a guy who was converted, right? They grew up with Herod Antipas, and uh, here he was converted to Christ and is now one of the leaders here in the church. And finally, of course, we have Saul, who will be called Paul from Tarsus in Cilicia. So this was really very early in the church, a very diverse group of men from all over the place. Uh, Notice that the church was fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke, I think, presumably through one of the prophets. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have all of Scripture yet, and so there's much more direct guidance being given. And they are directed specifically to send Barnabas and Saul to do some special work. So they didn't, so, but, but what they also did is it says they also fasted and prayed some more. And once this process went on, I don't know how long it was. Was it days or weeks? I'm not sure. But they ended up saying, yes, we've settled that we're going to send these two men. They call them, they call the church together. They lay hands on them as an official Uh, ordination, if you will, to say we're sending you out as missionaries to do this special work. So the Holy Spirit instructed the church to send these out, thus providing the foundation for what we call the first missionary journey. So verse 4 says, Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down 
to, to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, we're not certain why they went to Cyprus first, but we do know that that's where Barnabas was from. So perhaps that's a reason they went there. I know he, he, he could have said, I know the place. Let's go there first. It's on our way. And it also seems that John Mark went along primarily to assist Barnabas and Saul as a servant. The Greek word there uh, is a derivative of the Greek word areso, which means to row. Uh, imagine a guy in a boat rowing. So he's, he's the guy that's probably just the servant. He's there taking care of their physical needs, assisting them however they need help. Verse 6, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, that is the governor of the Roman province, uh, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord, straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So the governor of the province, described as an intelligent man, wanted to hear the word of God. So God was at work opening this amazing opportunity, and Barnabas and Paul seized the moment. And as you can imagine then that the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, also known as Eliamus, saw this as a threat to his position and livelihood. He's a counselor to the proconsul, to the governor, uh, and so he is opposed to the message of Barnabas and Saul. By the way, this is the last time Luke will call him Saul. From now on, it'll be Paul. Uh, and the Greek word here for this sorcerer is uh, where we get our word magi. Think of the three wise men. He's a priest of sorts, a counselor to the governor. And so Paul stares at him. It's a stare down. He looked intently at Eliamus, and he publicly calls him, this wasn't very nice, was it? You son of the devil. And he rebukes him for his dishonesty, for perverting, twisting the straight ways of the Lord. Previously, The blind, we have seen in the story of Jesus, have been made to see, but now another kind of miracle. In this case, the seeing were made blind. 
This is part of the covenant curse that falls upon those who who rebel and pervert the ways of the Lord. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 28 and 29. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. We've seen this before in Scripture, most notably the blinding of Saul himself on the road to Damascus. It was a temporary blinding, but God certainly got his attention. He also had to have someone lead him by the hand. And so now the proconsul, the governor, was astonished. He was shaken as light had just dispelled darkness right before him. And the governor was converted to Christ. Wow. Verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Speak up. Take the floor. So an issue with John Mark comes up here as he decides he's not going any further. He returns to Jerusalem. And we know uh, this from what Luke records in Acts chapter 15, verses 38 through 40. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul was not happy about Mark's desertion. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being uh, uh, commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So we know that, again, we're not sure exactly why Mark goes back, but he does. And we know later the issue between John, Mark, and Paul will be resolved. We read in Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus My fellow prisoner greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God and are of the circumcision. They have proven to be a comfort to me. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for the ministry. Now, I think the note there is, look, all of us stumble, all of us fail, all of us fall down. Apparently, that was the case with John Mark in some sense of the word here. But these guys continue. We read in Luke's summary of Paul's sermon then in this situation. Remember, he's in the synagogue. Uh, It's mainly a Jewish audience. He has addressed the men of Israel along with some Gentile God-fearers who would have been present. So these are not Jews, but they do believe, and they're present at the synagogue, so it's a mixed group, if you will. Uh, uh, So the audience made up of people who knew the Old Testament scriptures pretty well, because every time they came, that's what was read. 
the law and the prophets. He's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there are scripture lessons being given, again, from the law and the prophets. It was common to invite rabbis to speak, and you recall Paul himself was a rabbi. Verse 16, then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. I imagine he was just telling, all right, be quiet. I guess, you know, time, I'm going to talk. And he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. So he's addressing both groups. Listen, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And after they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So Paul, in his sermon, just lays out this brief history of Israel from the patriarchs to the monarchy, And his focus is on God's initiative and God's grace toward his people. God chose our fathers, uplifted the people. He brought them out. He put up with their ways in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations. He gave land to the people. He gave them judges. He gave them kings, Saul and David. And then ultimately, then he jumps to the promised Savior who is Jesus. And Paul points out, that the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, who had been mentioned at the close of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, the forerunner, that he himself was the last prophet of the Old Testament who pointed to Jesus. So Paul is telling them that Jesus is the climax of biblical history. Everything's been pointing to him, and here now he has come, Everything that God's been doing in history was preparing for these days. And then he continues his sermon with an emphasis now upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel message. Men and brethren, verse 26, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So he's addressing everyone. To you... The word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. 
Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, or good news, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. It's how often Psalm 2 is quoted. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has thus spoken, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. The death and resurrection of Jesus were fulfillments of what God had just foretold throughout the Scriptures. So what he's saying is, look, you've heard the scriptures, you've heard them over and over. This is nothing new. This is what everything's been pointing to. Even their failure to recognize Jesus and their uh, rejection and their, excuse me, their rejection and condemnation of him fulfills the words of the prophets. Even when they asked Pilate to crucify him, they were carrying out all that had been written in the Scriptures. Then God raised him from the dead, and he was seen by many witnesses. And now, he says, I declare to you the good news that through the resurrection of Jesus, God has fulfilled what he promised through the fathers. This is what it's been all about. In support of his claim, he quotes Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16, all of which speak of David's future heir to the throne, the one who, unlike David, saw no corruption. David died. He decayed. He's a skeleton. But his David's son, that's not true. Paul was telling them that unless they acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah, then they had completely missed the point of Scripture. And I say to you today, if Jesus rose from the dead. That changes everything. Everything. It changes everything for you. Everything in your life. Everything in your past is interpreted in light of that, and everything in your future depends on that, if that's true. That's what Paul's telling them. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Verse 38, Therefore, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. There is not, it'd be hard to imagine a statement more important than that. Therefore, brethren, through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken to the prophets come upon you. In other words, you better pay attention. 
Verse 41, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And so Paul gives a direct and a stark warning. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken of the prophets come upon you. You don't want that to happen. In these two verses, we see the foundation of the gospel that Paul will expound upon in his letters. The forgiveness of sins, faith, justification, and the law. Attempts to obey the law to be right with God cannot accomplish justification. You cannot, you cannot be good enough to be right with God. It's too late. Sin has already poisoned you. You're dying. You can't fix it. You have no power. You have no ability. Stop trying to do it that way. It doesn't work. How many people think, oh, I'm going to be okay. I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. That's the problem. Their greatest problem, you see, was not Rome, not the Roman Empire. And our greatest problem isn't politics. It's not, what we're, it's not the stuff we're seeing on the news, if you watch that anymore. That's not your biggest problem. What they are doing out there, all their plots, all their schemes, what does Psalm 2 say about that? The kings and the rulers of the earth have plotted against him to break his bonds. God's not going to tell us what to do. We're going to do it our way. And what does the Bible say? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. Ha, ha. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In other words, bow before Jesus. Their greatest problem was not Rome. Their greatest problem and your greatest problem is sin. Not being right with a holy God is an eternal problem that can only be remedied by the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God, the free gift. And then finally, starting in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them, as we'd say, next Sunday, in this case, next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, this is amazing, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Word got out. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles... 
For as the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1. I'm going to send you to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So many believed that day and they begged for more. I'm reminded of the response to Paul's sermon in Athens at the Areopagus that we'll read about in Acts 17 after he preached there to the Greeks in this famous place where Socrates had been. It says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some made fun of him. They mocked. While others said, We'll hear you again on this matter. I'm speaking to Paul. And then in this kind of of matter-of-fact way, so Paul departed among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Same kind of situation here. So Paul and Barnabas encouraged this eager and hungry crowd to continue in the grace of God And on the next Sabbath, word had gotten out, an even bigger crowd shows up to hear Paul and Barnabas. And Luke says, like I say, it's the whole city. I think perhaps a bit of hyperbole, like we would say, everybody was there. The reaction of some of the Jews was envy. Something had to be done to stop them, to shut them up. This fire needs to be extinguished. Do you know how many people have tried to do that throughout history? To get rid of the faith, to burn all the Bibles to crush the Christian faith. Paul's response was, in effect, if you don't want this good news, suit yourself. We'll take it to somebody else. We'll take it to the people who do want it. We'll take it to the Gentiles. And then he quotes from Isaiah 42, 6, that I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That was always God's intent. This wasn't plan B. This was the same passage Simeon spoke when he held the baby Jesus in his arms at the temple. And the Gentiles responded and said they were glad and they glorified the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now this verse is very unnerving to many. Because it puts God in charge of your salvation and not you. It's unnerving. You mean God has to save me? I can't save myself? Maybe me and God together? Maybe I'll let God save me? You may as well say that you let the sun come up today. For by grace have you been saved... Through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. So even the faith is a gift from God. Calvin said, since the whole human race is blind and stubborn, those faults remain fixed in our nature until they are corrected by the grace of the Spirit. And that comes only from election. Our last verses, verse 49 through 52. 
And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Nothing could stop this spreading flame. It spread throughout all the region. As a result, resistance and persecution arose, and Paul felt the brunt of that. I suspect they were definitely not politely escorted out of town. Paul would later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and all of them, out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. Paul and Barnabas respond to their opposition with the symbolic shaking of the dust from their shoes. You'll recall the words of Jesus that he had spoken to his disciples when he had sent them out and he told them to speak to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire, into, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go out into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Luke's story ends with these encouraging words. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. These are the same words that I want to encourage you with today. We too are called to proclaim the gospel, the good news, and when we do, there will be mixed responses. Some will believe, others will oppose, but as you leave here today, I want to challenge you to go filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have delivered your inspired word to us so that we might know how you work and that we might be encouraged to see how your word continued to multiply and spread like a flame even in the face of opposition. And here we sit today, having been reached by that same flame, that same word, and we rejoice to know that your good news cannot be stopped. May we be found faithful in continuing enjoy in this powerful kingdom work and we pray in jesus name amen as we come to the table a few reflections upon some of the lessons we learned from this text today we learned that god's kingdom does not advance without churches making some painful investments and so we too must be willing to sacrifice comfort and esteem and money to spread the gospel. 
It's not all about us. It's not all about Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church and our local congregation. We want to see the kingdom spread everywhere. Again, I think about how Jerusalem invested in Antioch with teachers, with funds, with encouragement. And in the end, God used them to then be a blessing back upon Jerusalem. We also learn that there will be setbacks in ministry. As John Mark went back to Jerusalem, sometimes people grow weary. They give up. They stumble. Ministries might fail. Churches might fall by the wayside. But if we are to accomplish our God-given objectives, we must not allow those setbacks to preclude us from pressing forward in the faith. May we be encouraged today as we remember that Barnabas and Saul went into the synagogue and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who was there. That's our audience, everyone who's there. We'll see that again when we see Paul at the Areopagus. He's, he's there by himself, and it says he just he spoke to whoever happened to be there. Who has God put in the path, in your path? Who's your neighbor? Who should you be speaking to? Of course, your children family members, your neighbors, but strangers as well. Paul pronounced, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled in us. And then in verse 38 and 39, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's what everybody needs. Everybody needs that. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything that you couldn't be justified through the law of Moses. You can't be good enough. Your good works are filthy rags, and so are theirs. They need a Savior. They need someone who is good. Jesus. Now, the bad guys wanted to see Barnabas and Saul driven out of town, and it it worked. In fact, we're told... In verse 50, that the opposition succeeded succeeded in stirring up a persecution against these two ministers such that they were driven from the region, not just from town. And yet, again, I'll remind you what happens in verse 52. In the face of all those discouragements, we learn that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We win. O Lord, grant us your patience, your long-suffering, to see the world and ourselves in the light of your perfect timing, and to entrust ourselves to you regardless of the immediate circumstances. Go with us now into this new week. May we walk with you and not sit in the seat of the scornful. Give us the thousand-year view. Give us the thousand-generation view. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.